That's what Christmas is, right? Jesus is the picture of a God who doesn't run away from suffering. He's not scared of our pain. He's not scared of our mess. He runs towards it. He comes down and he gets born in a, a stable. You know what a stable is here in Low Farm? You know what a stable is? It's a barn, right? My dad, if you grew up as a farm boy, at one point your dad has for sure said to you, close the door, were you born in a barn? Sometimes I'd say, well, dad, Jesus was, so he didn't think that was funny either. <laughs>
that this bad thing happened. Right? That they say, the guy's blind. So who sinned? His mom or his dad? They don't give another option. They, they, they don't give the option. Of maybe nobody sinned. They just, well, which one do you think it was? Is his dad that sinned or was his mom that sinned for him to be blind? Because obviously, when things go wrong, it's because somebody sinned. And now, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That in itself, we could probably do a whole sermon just on that, on that little passage there. Because that's a shocking response to say, hey, here's something that's gone wrong. Here's something that all of us would agree is, is not, a, not the best situation. And Jesus says, this is an opportunity for good stuff to happen. This is an opportunity for us to see the kingdom of God breaking in on our world. Stand back. And then he does the weirdest thing in the Bible. Well, there's lots of weird things in the Bible. Sometimes donkeys talk and things like that. But this is one of the weirder ones. He spits in the dirt. Sometimes I think there's almost there's comedy in the Bible, right? And if you were there at that moment, and this guy needs a healing, and you saw Jesus spit in the dirt, mix it together, and then smear it on his eyes? Wouldn't, you, wouldn't we all say, what's going on? What, what are you doing? Like, this is not what we expected. This is not the move we were looking for, right? But you see all kinds of these. Read John 4. I'm not, I won't read it right now, but the other day I was reading John 4. I think it's John 4. It's where Lazarus is in the tomb. Jesus often speaks like... Like a poet or an artist or something. You know, so much of, a, of the way Jesus communicates in the Gospels is in these sort of pictures. It's, it's like art. In this particular case, he's talking about the death of Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus is sleeping. Jesus comes back to him and says he sleeps now, but he won't always sleep. And he doesn't mean he's actually sleeping. Jesus knows Lazarus is dead. And so finally the disciples say, well, Jesus... If he's sleeping, why don't you wake him up? And then Jesus like breaks the, the moment and says, okay, Lazarus is dead, right? He, he says it straight out. He, okay, he's not sleeping. But man, are you guys hard to communicate with, right? There's another time where he's standing beside the temple. And this one I can forgive the disciples a little bit for not getting it right. But Jesus is standing beside the temple. And he says, I will tear this temple down and build it up in three days, Right? And the Bible itself, this is also in John, the Bible itself says uh, he was actually talking about his body. He was talking about his death and resurrection on the cross, right? But he was standing beside the actual temple in Jerusalem. So you could forgive the disciples for thinking that that's what he meant, right? Later they realized, no, he was doing that thing that Jesus does. That for ears to hear, those who have ears to hear, he always says, right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't pound you over the head with his message, he puts it out there and says, come and follow me. And those who have ears to, ear, ears to hear say, there's something good here and I want to know more. And then they dig into it a little bit. But in this situation, again, he says, he's talking about the temple and the, the um, disciples get it wrong. And eventually they understand. But Jesus is gone, long gone by the time they get it. And they're writing the Bible when they say, when he said that thing about the temple... He didn't actually mean the temple, he meant his body, right? So, all that to say, I think that might be what's going on here. I don't know. No one, there's so many things in the gospel, you listen to the experts, there's a lot of experts, we all know that, right? 
Um, and the experts will make it sound like they have the final answer. And I think there's a lot of good answers, but I'm not sure that anyone has a final answer. So I don't know that this is for sure what was going on here. But I wonder if Jesus was doing one of those things here too. Because what else is going on that, you know, we know Jesus could have touched the guy's eyes and said, be healed. He actually does that in other places. Why spit in the dirt and rub the dirt on the guy's face and then actually give him something to do? He said, go wash. And then they work it into the scripture. They say, Salome means, what did Salome mean? Sent. Salome means sent. And that one, I come back to an awful lot. Salome means sent. Sent, who's, who sent? Who sent to who? So I grew up at Killarney, like I said. When I was 18 years old, I moved to the big city of Winnipeg, and I encountered things I'd never seen in Killarney, Manitoba, because that stuff doesn't happen there. First time I saw someone on the street corner breathing like this. And uh, it wasn't winter and it wasn't cold, so I knew they weren't warming their hands. And I said to somebody, what's going on there? And they said, well, they're sniffing glue. And my response was, why would you sniff glue? Like, the, the, it, that kind of response is the response I had. Like, that, that is... Are you crazy? That, that'll wreck your brain. That'll wreck your body. But a whole bunch of people were doing this. But I was curious enough to know. I wanted to know why. I really did. So I got to know some of the guys who were addicted to sniffing glue. It started by them coming and saying, hey, we want money. And my group of friends, we were all going to be teachers. We were at the University of Winnipeg. And we were all heading towards being teachers. And so we decided we're not going to give money. That doesn't, I don't know what we're going to, what's going to happen with the money. But we had a hunch that we needed to get closer to the situation somehow. Didn't help just to ignore it and to walk away from it. Jesus wouldn't have done that. As a matter of fact, what did Jesus do? He got kind of dirty. He spit in the dirt, rubbed that dirt around, right? And that was kind of our hunch is that, well, maybe we need to get a little dirty. Maybe that's where the healing comes from. So we said, okay, we won't give any money, but we'll say, I'll take you for a burger. At McDonald's or A&W. There was one by the, well, there's still a McDonald's by the U of W. There used to be an A&W not so far away too. The first thing that was so shocking to me is how many people weren't interested in that burger. I thought everyone would want to have a burger with me. It didn't turn out to be the case. I, more than half the people were like, no, you're, I'm as scared as you as you are of me, right? There, there's, those are two worlds colliding, but some, some said yes. And the ones who tended to say yes were the guys who were known in the inner city of Winnipeg as the lowest of the low. That's the sniffers, the people who sniff glue. It's a strange thing that at every level of society, we have this way of looking at the person next to us and putting them down to make ourselves feel better, right? The rich do it, and the middle do it, and the poor do it too. They look at the sniffers and say, not that bad. They're the lowest of the low. But it did end up, they were the ones who said, okay, I'll go for the burger. So you'd end up in this really weird situation of Killarney Farm Boy sitting across the table from homeless guy from Winnipeg who's addicted to sniffing glue. That's not a, a pairing that happens every day. And we actually became pretty good friends with some people who were nothing like us, or completely not from our world. And at first, to me, it felt like getting dirty, like... There would have been lots in my community who said, these are not people you should associate with. Jesus did, though. 
Jesus associated with so many people that were not, nothing like him. Now, who could be like that? None of us were sinless like Jesus. So nobody's really like Jesus in a way. But Jesus, that didn't stop him from connecting to people who were very, very different. To the point where the Pharisees, who were so angry in this scripture, the Pharisees would call him, um, a, a, what did they say? A drunkard and a glutton and a friend of the worst kinds of sinners. That's what the Bible says the Pharisees called Jesus. And so I kind of take that as my... Now, Jesus wasn't a, a glutton and he wasn't a, a drunk, but he was a friend of the worst kinds of sinners. So if I get accused of that, maybe I'm in good company. Maybe I'm, I'm in the right path. There's another guy who's accused of that thing, right? A friend of the worst kind of sinners. He wasn't afraid to get dirty because that's where the healing comes in because we'd sit with those guys and we got to know their lives. We got to hear their stories. And I'd hear really bad stuff, really rough stuff. Sometimes I call it a stack of failures. It's like the first stack is personal failure. Things going wrong, bad choices that you made that led to bad consequences, right? Now, when people are far from the situation, that tends to be sometimes the only thing they can see. You made bad choices, and now it's your fault that you're in this situation. Shame on you. That's not true. It's not only personal failure, right? It's not only personal responsibility. The tricky part is, that's part of it. So you get this thing, especially right now in our society, I know you know about it, where one side says, personal responsibility, you have to take personal responsibility. And the other side says, systemic injustice, it's all about the system that, that things went wrong for you. And then they, they yell at each other, you're no good and you know nothing, and you know, you know nothing, and you're no good. And they just kind of fight. But the truth is, anyone on the ground who's actually loved someone who's very different than them and who's entered into a situation of pain that someone's in knows it's absolutely both. You absolutely have people who have been kind of crushed by the society we're in. But those very people need to take personal responsibility. The most cruel thing I could do to some of my friends who are addicted to sniffing glue, the worst thing I could do is say, oh, you're, you've had a really rough life. Everything's gone wrong for you. Nothing really you can do about this. That'd be cruel. And that's actually, that, that wouldn't bring them any closer to changing their life or to the love of God, right? The love of God actually says to us, hey, things are bad, but I'm still with you. And you can come follow me and take control of the slice of your life that you can find control over, even if it's a very thin slice. That's actually the way to change, right? Take responsibility for the piece of your life that you can. Are you in control of all your life? No, you're not. None of us are either, right? Some people have very little control in their life, but take control of the slice that you can. That's what you have to do. That's, that's the only thing you can do. So that personal responsibility log, it's, it's an important one. It's not the only one. There's also family failure and societal failure and historical failure, things that went wrong before any of us were born that meant people weren't, didn't have the same starting point, right? Those things all together get on someone's back and it crushes them. And people find it hard to get out from under that. So in a strange way, some of the friends who I heard their whole story, I'd hear their life and I'd hear the failures on failures that were a part of their life they would talk about how it feels like living at below zero, like minus 10, not temperature, but just life is like a minus 10 rating. And then they'd say, when I sniff, I don't feel good or bad, I feel nothing. 
but zero, feeling nothing, is better than minus 10. So it had a bit of a logic to it. It's just, it's, it's not good long-term, right? It's not, gonna, it's, it's not, a, it's not a choice that's going to make your life uh, any better. But that's when you start to realize the only way to find healing in such a situation like that is for other people to come in and, and, and lovingly connect, right? And these are people who won't stay distant. They're people who get in the net. All of us have this net, right? It's the people who you are connected to and who are connected to each other who are strong for you when you're weak. Because everybody's weak sometimes. You know, it's an important thing to know where you're strong. But everybody some, isn't strong all the time. And when you're in a difficult situation, you fall into this net of people around you who are going to help you along. You see this in so many ways. As a matter of fact, it's the very basis of the gospel. It's why Jesus called into existence something called the ecclesia in the, in the old language. It's the church, right? The point of the church is that we're not supposed to do stuff alone. Because nobody's got all the strengths just by themselves. Jesus calls us to this place to connect with each other and be honest and open with each other and carry each other's burdens. That's what the church here and in the whole world does. It's what it's always supposed to do. Someone goes to another place and says, hey, people are in need. They, they need some help, right? You've got people in your life who help you. I sure do. Nobody's strong all by themselves. Only Jesus is strong. There's one who's strong, and that's the one we look to and say, help. And what does he do? Does he stay far away? He's the, the, the most all-powerful being. In, he's it. He's in the universe. He's all the power and all the glory. And that, you know that hymn that says, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but instead he died alone for you and me. It seems to me like we got a pretty good picture of what love looks like there. The almost powerful knowing being in the universe doesn't stay far away from suffering. He doesn't run away from suffering like we tend to do. He, he runs towards it. That's how God looks. That's what Christmas is, right? Jesus is the picture of a God who doesn't run away from suffering. He's not scared of our pain. He's not scared of our mess. He runs towards it. He comes down and he gets born in a, a stable. You know what a stable is here in Low Farm? You know what a stable is? It's a barn, right? My dad, if you grew up as a farm boy, at one point your dad has for sure said to you, close the door, were you born in a barn? Sometimes I'd say, well, dad, Jesus was, so he didn't think that was funny either. <laughs> Careful, don't use that when your dad is grumpy. But Jesus was born in a barn. Where should a king, where should the all-powerful king of the universe, where should that king be born? I say, when I say that to grade threes and fours, they usually say, well, a palace. Yeah, probably the nicest palace ever built. But that's not the way God rolls, not our God. The way he rolls is to go to the lowest place, get born in a barn. And then it's fascinating, the Christmas story, as we move into Christmas here, don't miss the important points, because it's beautiful and it's fascinating. Who gets the angel chorus? Who gets the message blasted to them? The most important foreign dignitaries? Nope. The most important foreign dignitaries, they get a notification. 
But they've got to be looking for it. It's a star in the east. And they can see it. And they, because they have ears to hear, because some of the, the rich and the powerful, because they're looking for it, they know something important's happening here. Most of the rich and powerful miss the whole thing. And who gets the blast, the on-blast message? Shepherds in the field, right? This is not how we work. But that's apparently, that's how God works. God says, uh, you, the people who you call important, the people who you put on the pedestal and put at the top, uh, that's your way. That's how humans work. I'm trying to show you a different way. He's always been trying to show us a different way. We don't get it fast, right? It's been 2,000 years and we still do this. We're not, we're not quick off the draw. But God is faithful and God is patient and God is kind. Obviously, he's kind that he goes to the low places and gets dirty and says, invites us into this kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis talks about the kingdom of God is like this. We're living in enemy-controlled territory. We know we are. When, 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 this, when the devil takes Jesus and the temptations to the top and shows him all the kingdoms of the world, Satan actually says, this is mine to give. I control this right now. Ultimately, he doesn't control it. But he's getting a bit of a window where he gets to control things. And C.S. Lewis says, the situation we find ourselves in now is that we live in enemy territory. We live in any enemy-occupied territory. The whole world doesn't do things God's way. We give glory to the powerful and the strong, and we ignore the rejected and the weak. But, Lewis says, the invasion force has landed. The soldiers are on the beaches. That's you, right? There's, there, we're in the culture. We're present here. We're not scared of suffering. We're actually coming after it. We're, we're doing like Jesus did. We're going to go to the low places and go to a difficult situation. We don't run from that stuff. That's what the world does. We run towards it. That's not the normal impulse for most people today. Most people want to be richer. And most people want to be with the rich. But Jesus gives up his power and goes to a place where he's with the poor. He's, he's a friend of the worst kind of sinners. That's the kind of God we serve. And that's what makes Christmas so merry. Again, we miss that a lot, don't we? We go to the malls and shop and make it about power again and make it about getting more power for me. But slowly, carefully, faithfully, that message is there, actually screaming loud at us. It's there in plain sight, but we just skip over it. But God hasn't given up on us. And so because God hasn't given up, us, up on us, we don't give up on, on others either. We invite them into our circles and we say, join with us. Help us to love. Teach us how to love. That's, that has, I think that is one of the best prayers we can pray is, is to admit that we don't love the way God loves. God is good. We're not so good. We have our good days. But we're not good like God is good. We don't love like God loves. But he invites us to try. He invites us in. And he actually says, I'll give you my heart. I'll teach you how to love. Because it'll be him loving through us. But that doesn't happen when we run away from the difficult things that Jesus ran towards. Right? That's why we run towards them. Because we run towards them and we find out that there's just as much happening for us as there is for the person we're connecting with, right? That's what we always think. When we go to help someone who's in a difficult situation, we think, I'm going to help them. And that's true. We are. But you've got to be careful 
Because sometimes we can go with this attitude that says, I'm here to help, and I'm pretty close to perfect. And you're a mess, and I'm here to fix you. Congratulations. Here I am. There's only one who gets to say that. That's Jesus. There's only one who's got nothing to fix. The rest of us are invited into that net. 